and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and I'm here today with Dr. Sarah Lorenzini to discuss her new book, Global Development, A Cold War History. Dr. Lorenzini discusses the evolution of development as an idea in light of the Cold War, which saw different factions not only using development for geostrategic objectives, but defining development in different ways according to their own interests and needs. Dr. Lorenzini, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you. I'm, well, my name is Sara Lorenzini and I teach international history at the University of Trento in Italy. I have studied um, in a lot of places, actually, but I got my PhD from the University of Florence and I studied development studies at the London School of Economics and I've been working a lot in Germany and in German archives throughout. So tell us a little bit about your grad, your, your work as a graduate student specifically. Um, during my PhD, I have been working on the competition between West and East Germany in Africa. And this topic actually brought me closer to development, which is uh, my main topic and my great passion as a historian, even though it is not the only thing I have been working on. I've been working a lot on Italian foreign policy too, uh, the history of Italy in the early Cold War and of Italian foreign policy in the early Cold War is another of my uh, main topics, really. But uh, so the my passion lies in studying development aid and the history of development, and this is where uh, my book, the book that we discussed today, comes from. So this book, um, Global Development, tell us a little bit, I mean, just briefly, what are you arguing in this book? So I'd single out three main lines of argument that I make in this book. And the first is that the Cold War was fundamental to construct the institutions, the concepts, and the discourse around foreign aid, the one, the discourse, the discourse that survives uh, today. So this is probably the main point. Then... Another point I make and is very important to me is that the analysis of the history of development shows how national and international institutions promoted an idea of development as a homogenous system that is pretty unrealistic because I don't believe that development was and is a homogenous system as such. And then a third point that I make in my book and that I think is also very important when thinking about development and uh, ideas on development and how we use development in foreign policy today uh, is that uh, foreign aid was long for all its history actually understood as a tool to enhance the security, but it systematically failed to do so. And this is kind of one, probably the most important lessons learned, lesson learned from the history of development, I believe. So let's let's start at the beginning, sort of chronologically, with your book. Um, where does this rhetoric of development come from? Even even you even introduced the word, and sort of economists became to understand it. Tell us a little bit about that. 
Um, yeah, well, uh, maybe the first thing that we have to touch upon here is the definition. What is the what is development in this book? What kind of definition I use? Because there are, there are in fact multiple definitions of development, as you know. And well, when I talk of development in my book, I talk of the policies that were devised to turn poor backward countries into wealthy modern ones. And, well, going back to the to your question, where does this rhetoric of development come from? I'm, uh, it is true, I trace back the history of the concept, um, not starting with the Enlightenment, but really in the 1920s, because I believe that development becomes a crucial policy and a concept to work with in the uh, 1920s, and it is used as a tool for governing empires, as the civilizing mission of the colonial empires. And this is uh, um, what development was in the beginning, a domestic policy to improve living conditions in backward areas in the empire and avoid social unrest in the empires. So how does the United States become involved in this rhetoric of development and the idea of development? Well, no doubt if um, we were to identify the turning point for the involvement of the U.S. in development and in this idea of development, the date would probably be the 20th of January 1949, when Harry Truman launched the famous Point Four, a policy of making U.S. scientific advances available to underdeveloped areas. In order to fight misery, malnutrition, and illness, so this is more or less as it reads uh, in his uh, speech. Um, so this is probably the the, fir- the first moment. But nevertheless, uh, in my book, I also argue that it took really a while before aid became a proper tool in the toolkit of U.S. foreign policy and with this explicit aim to fight communism that was there from the very beginning in, uh, in Truman's uh, plans and in Truman's idea. But it was only in 1956 when the Soviet Union under Khrushchev explicitly entered the competition for influence in the Third World by using foreign aid. It was only then, 1956, that aid became a weapon to find uh, the Cold War, really. And from then on, development, or to say it better in uh, U.S. uh, foreign policy language and social social scientist language modernization uh, became the way to engage with the global south, with the third world, was actually the expression that was used back, uh, back then. And then, I mean, you've mentioned Khrushchev in 1956 and sort of the changing orientation of the socialist bloc, but, but prior to that, you, know, you charted, they have sort of an, an unusual history here. Where do they stand in terms of development and the global south? Yeah, so, yeah, Khrushchev, with his speech, uh, I have just uh, I have just mentioned starts the whole you know uh, interest uh, of the socialist bloc in uh, development because earlier um, 
Earlier, the Soviet Union had not really built on the ideological advantage introduced by the revolutionary message of Lenin in his uh, pamphlet on imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, written in 1917. Um, Stalin wasn't interested in, in third world developments. Yeah, he focused on and was mainly preoccupied with defending and consolidating the Soviet Union as a state, really securing its borders. But then with decolonization and with the emergence of the third world, the whole understanding of the potential of anti-colonialism changed and the strategy actually shifted from indifference to attention in what has been defined, and I adopt this definition myself as an afterthought. Uh, what Khrushchev's choice of openness uh, toward the uh, newly independent countries actually represents. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, um, Khrushchev. Khrushchev is a turning point in a whole uh, tradition of uh, neglect, really, for quite a long time. And I don't know what you you probably you probably want to hint at the, uh, the fact that I uh, that I start by saying that in fact Marxism was not. Uh, so much uh, against uh, colonialism, and that is uh, so. I I trace back the history um, in Marxist thought and uh, in the debates uh, that happened uh, earlier on this point, where actually the uh, well international communism and the uh, and international social democrats, in fact, were were divided on. on how to deal with uh, colonialism. Was colonialism a good thing because it helped, you know, uh, dramatizing uh, the class consciousness or, and, uh, and, and it helped constructing the working class or uh, was, it, uh, uh, was it bad and, uh, and was it worth thinking of a, a straightaway of a revolutionary, uh, a revolution, revolutionary plans? So this is uh, kind of the untold story you're hinting at that is, uh, indeed in the uh, in the chapter of my book but no, nonetheless it is uh, uh, it is uh, really like uh, the um, the important turning point is indeed uh, Khrushchev to understand uh, uh, you know this dynamic of uh, cold war competition for the third world now this is a broad question um, but in this period, and, and really running throughout, to what extent does development in the global south also serve domestic political purposes, either for the United States or potentially for the Soviet Union, or of course these European powers that are reconsidering their relationship with either colonized territories or formerly colonized territories? Um, well, it's a broad question with a probably with a generic answer. <laughs> Maybe then you want to go into the the specifics because well, the development has always been was always a way to promote national interests, so to promote economic uh, and political strategic interests. Uh, it was and is a way to gain economic advantages, such as important contracts for raw materials, for example, or for opening up opportunities for a business, uh, uh, including private business abroad. 
Uh, and also the security rationale was indeed an important dimension of national uh, of national in- interest. Uh, the idea that aid would uh, avoid or contain the threat of communist insurgency at home and abroad was indeed uh, a main pillar of the system from the very beginning, both in the colonial empires and uh, and in the United States, uh, in United States foreign policy. Um, less so, obviously, in the socialist countries who actually were very keen on revolution and on on disrupting the system. Obviously. <laughs> yeah. There's this term that you employ, your Africa. You know, it's it's a fascinating term and it, it carries all these connotations. Tell us a little bit about that and, and to how that's being deployed in the interest of development. Uh, okay, so the idea, the concept of Eurafrica, well, when you, when we, when it was used, when it was devised, and it was created, this uh, term, the idea was the idea of a block that included Europe and Africa, and that would restore Europe as a geopolitical third force between uh, East and West. <laughs> Uh, and this idea circulated widely in continental Europe in the years before decolonization, starting in the 1920s, really, but then later on, too. And in the early 1950s, European leaders worked at the project of a united Europe that included the African colonies so in the idea of Eurafrica. And this project became then, 1957, the European Economic Community, an institution that reflected the best this idea, so that in 1957, when the treaties of Rome were signed by the heads of state of the six countries building the European Economic Community, Polna Rispak, the Belgian, um, greeted uh, the signing of the Treaties of Rome uh, with uh, such words. So finally, the dream of Eurafrica comes true. So this is a story that is uh, actually not very often told about uh, the birth of the uh, European Economic Community. Uh, But then uh, you can read in my book how the European Economic Community adopted uh, the tradition of the Union Francaise uh, based on the principle of association of of the colonies so countries in Africa were associated to the community and uh, association was based on two major pillars, trade and aid. So development was an important dimension uh, to, the, uh, to the project. Trade meant preferential trade uh, with reverse preferences in the colonial tradition and aid was offered through the European Development Fund and financed projects of uh, technical assistance like in the um, tradition of both the point four and, uh, and colonial uh, aid. 
And then what happened is uh, that with the decolonization, this uh, regime needed to be turned into foreign policy, in fact. It became a specific treaty, the Yaoundé Convention, which is probably the first uh, brick of the foreign policy of the uh, European community. Uh, so, yeah, Eurafrica is indeed a concept uh, that is uh, very useful to understand uh, at least two decades of the history of uh, uh, European development aid within uh, the European economic community as it was devised and organized then. Now, how did the United States work alongside Europe? Because, I mean, in many ways... United States and Western Europe are, are, if not strictly partners, at least allied in many ways. The United States also wants Europe to take a specific role within this. How does that play out? Yeah, well, development was from the very beginning with Point Four devised a, a cooperative project of the West. So uh, this was quite clear very early on. And this aspect became increasingly important. It became more became more important at the heyday of modernization in the year, years of the Kennedy administration. And at this point, uh, there was another priority in U.S. foreign policy, and this priority was burden sharing. And the U.S. administration thought it would be easier to convince European allies in NATO to contribute to sectors other than the military, uh, other than the budget used for uh, defense purposes. And so they thought that foreign aid could be a good terrain where the U.S. could cash some significant contribution from the partners, especially from the West Germans. And um, this is what uh, several policymakers, such as uh, Rostov, for instance, Kennedy's special advisor, thought uh, as you know the um, the future of uh, of development and cooperation uh, between the U.S. and uh, and the Allies in development. But this idea that it would be easier to involve uh, Europeans in projects on development easier than other areas proved to be especially wrong. And this is uh, clear, and I describe that in one chapter uh, of my book. It is uh, uh, it becomes quite clear in the discussions within the DAC, the Development Assistance Committee, born in 1960, 1961 within the uh, um, within the OECD, uh, and well, European partners resisted attempts to join forces in the area of development and really stick to their traditions in aid giving. Uh, And this is true both for the geographical concentration of aid and for what was a kind of a fundamental choice between program aid and project aid. The U.S. was for program aid, that means financing complete development plans, but Europeans, and especially, well, all of them, but especially the Germans, uh, were against it, and they wanted to finance specific projects only. This doesn't mean that cooperation didn't take place. It did take place, especially in consortia, 
where the West partnered on aid to some specific areas like Turkey, India, and Pakistan. Nevertheless, it was uh, quite, the U.S. had quite a hard time and didn't get uh, what they wanted uh, from their uh, European allies in this respect. No, there's a there's a global body that we haven't discussed that yet, um, but it's the United Nations. Where's the United Nations in this story, especially in this time period? Um, well, the, the United Nations is very important in the history of development. Development is one of the three legs in the UN system from the very beginning, one of the fundamental goals to be achieved in the ECOSAC, the Economic and Social uh, Council. And, well, the UN was the place where East and West met and, well, often actually also clashed on development. And my book features some of these controversies, the controversies around SAMFED, for instance, the Special UN Fund for Economic Development that was uh, eventually dumped by the US in the uh, early 1950s. Uh, but I think that is more important to remember and to keep in mind that the UN are especially the place where an alternative third world friendly development thinking was uh, able to flourish in the 1950s and 1960s. And while development grows in importance within the UN setting with decolonization and the changing composition of the UN, especially the UN General Assembly, uh, newly independent countries from Asia, Africa, and Latin America became members of the UN in the 1960s have development as an absolute priority. Uh, so this obviously changes really the the role and the you know the importance and the weight of the discussions about and around development, especially in the general assembly. And within uh, the United Nations system, uh, the United Nations Conference for Trade and Development became the ideal place for coordinating third world political action and offered a kind of, uh, how can we say, a neutralist alternative to uh, the development aid and development system that was centered on uh, the World Bank, the other uh, big uh, international institution dealing with, uh, with development. And in my book, I deal with UNCTAD from, from its birth in 1964, through the momentous project of the new international economic border uh, in the 1970s, between 1973 and 1974. And I follow, actually, the life uh, of um, development at UNCTAD until the early 1980s and the failure of uh, this project of the new international economic order. Now, we've, you've just mentioned... Um, the, the the global south suddenly getting sort of a more of a voice in this period, especially through the UN. What are you mentioned? I mean, for development, for them, development is an absolute priority. 
what specifically are do they is there a sort of coherent agenda you can assign to the global south is it just they wanted development or was there a specific vision for it that at least many of these countries sought um well um what actually um, changed the, the role of development within the un system the, the element I mentioned earlier in the uh, previous answer is uh, uh, you know, the, are the huge changes that happened in the, 19, uh, in the 1970s. Um, so the crisis of the Bretton Woods system after 1971 helped somehow third world claims, uh, which also... Uh, enjoyed the support of the rebellious youth movements in the West starting uh, 1968 onwards. Um, And, you know, in this period, in the first half of the 1970s, the Third World could count on the crucial strategic alliance with the oil producers, uh, united in the OPEC, in the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, who were reclaiming sovereignty over natural resources, and they could build on the successful oil revolution, as it has been called, and the success also of the 1973 oil embargo that was a major shift for uh, the global south, because this important uh, backing by OPEC gave the global south uh, really a new contractual power, putting it in an ideal position to promote uh, its uh, ambitious uh, plans for economic decolonization. Uh, the economic bandung, it was called sometime, this uh, idea of the new international economic order uh, that monopolized public discourse, uh, at least uh, uh, in the group of the uh, third world countries uh, between 1973 and 1974. So this is indeed a crucial moment and turning point this uh, a new identity uh, of uh, of the global south around this new power given you know by uh, by the uh, success of uh, of OPEC as an international organization and of its claims on uh, sovereignty over natural resources now you spend a chapter discussing environmental consequences of these of these sort of visions of development. This was one of my very favorite chapters in the book. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So the chapter uh, deals with the uh, early concerns with the sustainability of growth. The limits of growth is the title of the most successful and controversial book discussing the predicament uh, with uh, uh, growth. Uh, that is uh, very typical for the early uh, 1970s. And the main focus of my chapter is on the environment development nexus and how this was discussed around the UN conference on the human environment held uh, in Stockholm uh, in June 1972. And, yeah, well, the point here was the... The scientific community had started 
complaining, in fact, that mega dams and large irrigation schemes had been evaluated according to political, economic, and also engineering parameters, but without taking into account the environmental disruption that they caused, or even the social uh, consequences or medical consequences, biological on the you know uh, ecological balance, um, and uh, so the uh, the idea, the fundamental idea that was discussed uh, on the eve of the Stockholm conference and also uh, during the Stockholm conference was that the environment. <clears throat> need to be reconsidered, to be considered as a factor uh, because it was crucial uh, for the success of uh, the real success of a development plan. Uh, There could be no effective development uh, scheme uh, uh, if the environmental uh, consequences were not considered. And this was uh, the, the idea there in the, in the background. Now, how did individuals in the global south react to these concerns over of pollution and especially overpopulation? Because this is also the period when we get Paul Ehrlich's population bomb, for example. Where are they in these discourses? Well, developing countries were not very keen on the protection of the environment. (laughs) Their priority was development. Pollution and overpopulation were problems for the rich people in the global north, and the global south needed to develop and had this as the main concern, as the only priority, really. So they tend the developing countries tend to see environmentalism as a pretext, a mere distraction from the real problem, the problem of poverty. So this is the main point they actually make, the leaders and uh, in in developing countries, uh, the the point that they make. As for overpopulation, uh, the question actually was pushed uh, to the margins at the Stockholm conference, and it was the third world that opposed any reference to population growth as a factor in maintaining ecological balance, so that the final document of the conference did not even mention it. So it's uh, it was again it was a concern, but uh, a concern of other cultures, according to um, leaders from the from the developing countries. And then I, I was just curious, where did the social socialist state stand on environmental issues? Uh, yeah, so uh, this is a very interesting story, I believe. Mm, there were uh, some important members in the Soviet Union under Brezhnev, like uh, uh, German Vishani, for instance, uh, who thought that the environment was one of the global themes that could... Uh, constitute the basis for dialogue between East and West. Um, So this is a very interesting element, but uh, I must say that uh, the environment was not a major concern to the Soviet Union per se. It was maybe, you know, kind of seen as a possibility for dialogue uh, during the Tant, but the environment was not uh, a concern at all. It was not a priority within the Soviet Union. 
uh, socialist countries and also the communist parties in the Western world tended to classify this preoccupation for the environment as a capitalist priority and criticized this idea of the environment trumping economic growth. And uh, so they were very much concerned with the rights of the workers and they feared that the environment could be a pretext to cut um, development and, uh, and, uh, and would end up damaging the workers as a class. As for, yeah, the socialist bloc did not even um, participate in the Stockholm Conference in 1972, as you know. China did. It was the first uh, time that the Popular Republic of China was uh, on stage in international politics, in fact. But again, China did not represent... uh, a socialist view specifically. It, it represented more the point of view of the third world countries stressing development as a priority um, too. And things uh, changed and uh, there is, uh, this is again, but a, a totally different story of what happens later under Gorbachev where a brand new rhetoric on the environment sets in in the socialist countries with this uh, greater consideration, greater role of disarmament as the most important measure to make sure that the environment can be preserved because the ma- major threat to the world and to the environment is war and nuclear war. We're in the age of the 1980s, so the Second Cold War, say, the revival of the Cold War. So how did the EEC find new ways of engaging with the Global South on development? Because that's a trend that emerges, um, especially in the later parts of the book, is the European economic community seems to shift. Yeah, from this old imperial uh, way of seeing, looking at development uh, um, into something else. Uh, yeah, in the 1970s, the system experienced quite, uh, the EEC system experienced quite, quite a significant change that was connected with the entry of the United Kingdom in the European Economic Community. And then obviously it became self-evident that the old Euro-Africa dimension that was given disproportionate centrality to the to France and to the French tradition and the former French colonies could not hold much longer. Uh, so what happened is that uh, guided by the new development commissioner, also French, they were also always French, uh, development commissioners in the EEC, uh, this guy uh, named Claude Chisson, who was also uh, for a while was very uh, a crucial personality in uh, European and French foreign policy uh, throughout uh, the second half of the 1970s till the late 1980s. Uh, so uh, under the guide of Chaisan, the European Economic Community worked for a new agreement to replace Yaoundé, including the former British colonies in Africa. And this new agreement was the Lomé Convention that was signed in February 1975. 
um, Lomé essentially uh, meant to extend association with the EEC to these other colonies. So in the end, it was uh, former colonies. So in the end, it was uh, 46 countries were the participant in this uh, new uh, agreement. And the main novelty of the agreement was in the uh, trade regime with uh, on the one hand, the abolition of reverse preferences, so of the old imperial uh, rules, and on the other hand, the introduction of STABEX, uh, mechanism for price stabilization of raw materials that was meant to uh, protect third world countries against uh, price volatility of uh, their primary commodities, their experts. And both of these requests uh, reflected the, the desires of the third world countries. So the requests that were uh, expressed in UNCTAD uh, by um, by the countries of the uh, global south, the requests that were at the center of the debate on the new international economic order that takes place exactly in those uh, in those years, right? And and then, you know, Shaysan was also a very clever guy, politically very clever, because he fashioned uh, European policies as an answer to the demands of the new international economic order and presented the European strategy as an ideal complement uh, with non-alignment. Uh, tomorrow's Europe, he said, has its extension in the third world. So this idea of this unity, of this special relationship of uh, the uh, European economic community and the third world is uh, the big, the big novelty that comes as a, also as a new identity of uh, Europe in the 1970s, and that is played by. Uh, European leaders uh, starting from the mid-1970s onwards constantly as, uh, you know, a kind of uh, idea for um, a strategic orientation of, uh, of Europe. Now, in one of your later chapters, you discuss attempts to try to reform the system via an organization, the NIEO. That ultimately fails. Why does it fail and what was the reform the sort of trying to be pushed through this system. Uh, yeah, well, the uh, the new international economic order was this radical uh, project uh, of uh, reforming of the international economic system. And actually, no actor, with the exception of uh, the European Economic Community that supported that, well, partially only, because in the end, uh, uh, not, uh, not, not so much, because the money, for example, that was invested in Stabex in the stabilization of prices of raw material was really limited. So actually, there was not so much of a, there was not such a huge uh, concrete support. But, uh, well, in general, in the global north, uh, there was no important actor uh, supporting the new international economic order, no national government, with the exception of the European uh, economic community. There was really no one taking sides with uh, with this uh, project. 
And well, actually, what happened is that the rich countries in the West found actually uh, a new unity in the G7 in their opposition to, to this uh, third world radicalism, to this uh, idea of re- revolutionizing the international economic system. Uh, the third world did not have the support of the socialist bloc either, uh, because for the Soviet Union and the allies of the Soviet Union, the new international economic order was all in all capitalist plan. And the real alternative for the poor countries was socialism, was joining the Comic-Con, uh, was joining uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the socialist bloc in its uh, economic organization, the Council of Mutual uh, <clears throat> Economic Assistance. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, we have to add that the rich countries in the West were especially successful in breaking third world unity, uh, they were very explicit uh, on this point, the, uh, this idea of dividing the rich oil countries and the least uh, developed non-oil countries uh, that were hit by the oil crisis. So the third world ceased to be a cohesive and organized force. And actually, there were these two groups, the moderates with the uh, uh, India, Egypt, and Indonesia, and the radicals, Iraq, Libya, Vietnam, with Cuba, that were facing each other within the non-line movement. So a huge split in the third world that uh, was one of the main factors why, uh, together with the worsening financial condition of third world countries in the 1980s, the debt crisis, well, this uh, all brought to... Um, you know, simply uh, uh, eliminating the new international economic order from the agenda. So briefly for our listeners, just contextualize what that debt crisis was and what it meant. And then how does that shape discourses around development? Uh, yeah, well, so the debt crisis is uh, um, this, uh, you know, huge skyrocketing of debts uh, that were typical for uh, third world country economies starting in the 19, started to pile up starting in the 19, uh, in the 1960s. And in the 1980s, uh, the amount of uh, of uh, of these stats uh, became uh, especially uh, heavy and tragic and caused uh, specific shocks, especially in Latin America. Um, the 1980s are generally considered the last decade for development. Um, for many reasons. Uh, criticism on aid as a corrupt and ineffective system came from all sides, with uh, also explicit criticism on the morality of aid. Uh, but on top of that, uh, in the 1980s, and as a consequence of uh, uh, these uh, problems with uh, uh, financing uh, uh, development and refinancing uh, debt, um, the International Economic Institution introduced structural adjustment programs, uh, 
uh, and also the neoliberal doctrines uh, tended to link growth to uh, um, cutting expenditures and promoting openness. Not anymore, you know, growth was not anymore linked to development planning or industrialization as it was uh, as it was earlier. And so this uh, actually picture and uh, composed a very uh, a bleak picture for aid that only partially recovered at the end of the Cold War um, because of the neoliberal era is uh, was there to stay for quite a long time and is still with us. <laughs> yeah. So out of, I always like to seek applications. President, are there any lessons we can take away from this history through the 21st century? Uh, well, uh, I must say that um, uh, aid was one um, or has been described very often as one of the greatest disappointments uh, of uh, the 20th century because it could never accomplish all the many diverse goals that all different actors hoped for because it was not effective or not effective enough in securing alliances. You could not grant uh, security or create political stability in the way the donors or the recipients uh, hoped for. It could not erase poverty and inequality, not among individuals, not among countries. Uh, so uh, this all, you know, disappointment with the partial results uh, of aid and uh, the, you know this uh, constant uh, analysis uh, that took place uh, starting from the 1980s but also earlier um, I bet the first analysis of this kind take place uh, in 1968 on the uh, effectiveness of the of the aid system. So all these uh, um, considerations about uh, does aid work are um, are answered, uh, you know, most of the times in the negative. However, we cannot forget really that there were, and if we look at the World Bank statistics today, we see that uh, in terms of poverty alleviation, uh, we have indeed achieved important uh, results at the global level, at least. Um, uh, so so I don't feel that we should be so negative in the whole, about the whole uh, history of development. But uh, one thing that I want to focus on, and I think, and for which I think uh, that it is useful to read and tell uh, the history of the development is uh, uh, that it is important, and we see that in the specific uh, case studies, to avoid the general recipes, so this uh, one-size-fits-all approach that uh, indeed was something that was not good for uh, achieving good results uh, in the long uh, history of development aid uh, throughout the Cold War and even after. Quick question, and I know this can sometimes be sensitive because you've just finished a book, but what are you thinking of working on next? Oh, okay. Next projects. Um, 
Well, right now, and you may have noticed from uh, you know the details I gave on the, <laughs> on that specific point, I am writing on European exceptionalism and the origins of uh, the foreign policy of the European Union. Um, so this is uh, these are the things uh, that I'm working on now. But my next big projects will probably be uh, on dams in Africa, and especially the ones built by Impregilo, now Salini, this big um, Italian, well, dam builder, um, with a focus on the security implications of dam constructions and the environmental consequences too. So this is what is coming up next, but it will take some time before it's done. Such as academic publishing. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Uh, Thanks to you very much for the interview. It was lovely to talk to you.